Today on The Black Goat, from the blogosphere, misconduct and lemons and more, when reviewers ask you to hark, and what to do when imposter syndrome strikes. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode three of The Black Goat. With me today are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hey, Sanjay. And I am Sanjay Srivastava, and welcome to our third episode. Um, So uh, a few things we wanted to talk about that are sort of going on in the blogosphere and being discussed in the (laughs) blogosphere. I'm already getting the the sign from Samin. So uh, one thing that we thought we'd mention, Alexa just put up a, a blog post uh, actually, a guest post on Rolf Zwan's blog about an experience that uh, she had being close to a case of misconduct. Um, and you all should check it out. It's Rolf Zwan, R O L F Z W A A N, at, is he at Blogger or Blogspot or? Anyway, just Google Rolf Zwan <laughs> blog and you'll find it. Uh, uh, <laughs> if we're He's really sophisticated, we might, put, we might put the. We could even put a link on our oh, website oh, or that's our Facebook a, or that is we'll you know, that's yes, really we'll do that. So go to go fancy. to our website and you'll find the link uh, by the time this episode airs. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a, a case uh, um, involving Rolf had had blogged about this uh, um, sort of as a result of a registered replication report finding out that some data had been. Uh, I, I don't know if is fabricated the right word or manipulated or something. Yeah, and it's not clear exactly what the right word is. Maybe tampered or... Yeah, that's um, probably a good word. Yeah. And the, the sharks were circling on the internet, I have to say. People, this is this kind of shit happens. I remember this happening. I posted about this on Twitter when the Stoppel and Smeesters things came up and people were like, how did the collaborators not know? And Alexa, I thought you gave a really compelling description of what it was actually like to be sort of on the inside of this. You weren't on the paper, but you you knew the graduate student. You've published other stuff, which is potentially affected, right? Right, yeah. So I wasn't on the specific paper um, that Rolf had discussed in his post, um, but I was on other papers with this student. Um, and so after reading Rolf's post, which I, I thought Rolf's post was excellent, and I knew about Rolf's involvement in this case from the beginning because... You know, I heard about his request um, to will to reanalyze the data um, or to take a look at the data. Um, and so uh, I think that um, reading it from Rolf's perspective was easy for me to relate to because I've read about other cases from this perspective. Um, and I also I really um, like commend and admire Rolf for all of the work that he did because this is extra work for him, right? Like it's He's going out of his way to be looking closely at this data. This is not something that all editors are doing. Um, but then I also, in this case, had this other perspective that I thought um, was maybe something that, that people would be um, interested in hearing. Um, not to say that, uh, you know, it's there are things that I regret about um, the way that we, or what we did when we looked at the data. Like, so... Um, I wish that, you know, I had examined the data more closely, um, but that's something that uh, feels much more obvious to me now, so that's something that I wanted to sort of convey when I talked about this in the in the post. 
Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was a great post. I mean, it really conveyed just the sense that that you see over and over again when these misconduct cases come up that involve collaborations. Just how how much it affects larger and larger circles of people. Like you said, Rolf. You know, I, I, yeah, I agree. Rolf's. I, I was not blaming Rolf at all. I think there was some chatter on the internet, but Rolf was very responsible and thoughtful. But it's just like. He spent a lot of time on this. You spent a lot of time on this. People don't necessarily see that. So so it's a great post. People should check it out. Yeah, and I thought the reception to it was also really heartening that yeah. I think people were responded positively to you sharing your side, even though, like you said, like you didn't do everything perfectly, but that's part of it. If we ask for openness and transparency, that means we're asking people to be honest about what really happened and the messy stuff. Yeah. And I thought it was nice that people were supportive about you sharing that stuff and admitting to some, you know, things that weren't perfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Samin, you just had a blog post come up the morning that we're recording this. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how long it'll be before we put this out, but folks should check that out as well. We'll put, also put a link uh, to your blog post, and it's based on a Collabra article you wrote, uh, which also I thought, you know, it was just super interesting, right? So taking this idea from uh, uh, from economics about information asymmetry and talking about scientific publishing. Yeah, so this guy, Akerlof, who got a Nobel Prize in economics for his work on this, so he calls it information asymmetry, which is basically like when sellers have more information than buyers, which really boils down to a lack of transparency. And it occurred to me that there's a parallel there with um, like authors of articles are kind of like sellers trying to get people to buy their finding. And if they're withholding vital information about how solid that is, it's like asking someone to buy your car without looking under the hood and saying, no, 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 don't look there. Just trust me. It's a good car. Um, and so I thought that that was a neat analogy that like, and, and he makes, he has like a mathematical formula for showing how this leads to erosion of trust in the market. And then no one's willing to invest in that market if they can tell that they're lacking important information they need to evaluate the product. And I think that's kind of what's happening in science with the replicability crisis, that people are realizing, wait, like this is, we're just seeing the exterior polished stuff, but we need to see what's going on. How solid is the engine? Is the transmission working? Which is like, you know, how did you collect the data? What other analyses did you run? Um, is it robust to other specifications? Things like that. So I thought that was kind of a fun analogy that I probably took way too far. No, no, I think it's, you know, what's really interesting about it, because you, you talk in the blog post and, and, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't read the Collabra article yet, but I, <laughs> probably the Collabra article as well about like the small Dino and McElroyth uh, simulation, the natural selection of, was it natural selection of bad science? I'm just going to go yeah. with that. Um, and and this, I mean, this is an example of like, this is, uh, uh, you know, sort of an idea from economics that's been formalized, it's been tested very much, and, and it's about how these things play out. And there's like very strong data and theory from econ that transparency in markets can reduce these effects. I, I thought it was not, it, to me, it, it didn't seem like just a quote unquote, quote, just a metaphor, but, but actually like there was a really interesting connection. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so another thing that's sort of been, been in the news lately, uh, that we, uh, um, uh, I think all of us were sort of following was this, this thing It got written up at nature and then at Boing Boing, um, about uh, Garrett Storms, uh, who's a is he a consulting editor at JEP so, Learning yeah. Memory and Cognition, uh, and uh, signer of the Peer Reviewers Openness Initiative, which says among other things that um, it's a commitment by reviewers that when they get a paper to review, 
they're going to ask the authors to either make the data available or to provide a reason why it can't be. Um, and that that's kind of a precondition to, to judging a paper. And so uh, um, Garrett Storms is a signer of this and said he was going to do that. And the, the journal editor uh, um, didn't like this. And it's, it's created a lot of uh, discussion online right now about sort of reviewers uh, um, signing this particular initiative, but also sort of open data and that sort of thing. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that this uh, happened and hit the news at the same time. For me, the, the, my Collab article, you know, it's been in the pipeline. I didn't know when it would come out. It came out the same week. which So it made me think a lot about, like, what, what does it mean for a reviewer to ask to see the data? Is that, like, an activist rogue act? Are yeah. they, like, making a strong statement? Or is it just, like, normal? And so I looked up... So APA is not a member of the Committee on Publication Ethics, but many, many publishers and journals are members and being a member means that you agree to their ethics guidelines, and they have ethics guidelines for reviewers. And one of those guidelines said a reviewer should read the manuscript and ancillary materials, including supplemental data files, um, and get back to the journal if anything is not clear, and requesting any missing or incomplete items they need to carry out a full review. So many journals who you know subscribe to these guidelines are already implicitly saying, look, if you need something to do the review, you should ask for it. And so I thought it's actually a pretty bold stand for APA to say that's against our policy. Right. Like most journals, I don't think, have a policy one way or the other. It's just like reviewers should ask for what they need. Um, so I thought it was interesting that APA is saying this is against their policy. Like to, either they have a policy against it or they interpret their policy as explicitly prohibiting this. Right. So APA has a, a, an open data policy, which has actually been criticized a fair amount for being weak. But it, it says after publication... Authors have to make it available, uh, and there, you know, there have been controversies about authors like asking for fees and that sort of thing. But, you know, all that aside, like the the policy, okay, so the policy doesn't APA doesn't have a written policy that requires you to disclose data, um, but you know, like the the policy, it's it's like, do you see the policy as a maximum or a minimum? And you could say the same thing about so many other things, right? So, like as a reviewer. I can ask for all kinds of information. I can ask for more details about the method. I can ask for someone to calculate and report an effect size. Um, uh, those things may not be mandated by a policy, but that's kind of the point of a reviewer is to say, well, what do I need? Like you said, with the COPE guidelines, what do I need to evaluate? And then you use that. And so if somebody mm -hmm. just feels like I can't evaluate a manuscript unless I have access to the data, that's, I guess, because that's new it's sort of, and because there's all this other politics around open data that sets people off. But like, if we go back to the 1980s and Jacob Cohen was like, I need to see the effect size, would APA have said, nope, you know, you can't yeah. have that? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. So, like, what is the most like convincing argument for why he shouldn't be able to insist on this? Uh, it's not clear to me. I think one, one idea is that if all authors are held to different standards, that that's going to be unfair. Like, so some reviewers are going to ask for this and other reviewers aren't. And so then there's going to be like in inequality right. across. Because peer review is so fucking consistent already. Equal, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> so the analogy I used in my collaborative paper to go back to the car thing. So it's like <laughs> if, if I was buying a car and I took it to a mechanic and say, hey, hey can you check out this car? By the way, I'm not going to pay you. So the mechanic is the reviewer here. I'm not going to pay you for your work. I want your expert opinion on whether this is a sound car. And also, don't lift the hood. <laughs> right? Like, 
we're asking reviewers to do this work for free, yeah. to sign off, put their stamp of approval on it, but don't ask for what you and need. And it's also like to... even more absurd than that because we are asking people to evaluate like these other signs of what's under the hood, right? So we're reporting whatever this like whatever the stats are, um, and we are asking reviewers very explicitly to evaluate a paper based on like stats and effect sizes and p values and things like that. Um, so it's like an even more bizarre analogy where it's like oh, and you can tell me like the summary of what's going on under the engine, but still don't look. It's yeah. very bizarre yeah. to me. So I think, I mean, if I, if I could try to make the, you know, what I understand is, is and I, I don't know actually what arguments are being made in this specific case, but there is a lot of uh, um, sort of unease and I think transition. We're in a period of change around open data in general. And there are plenty of issues like tough issues to be resolved with open data in the sense that like there are human subjects concerns sometimes there can be you know some data are proprietary i think there's also an issue uh for some people there's a concern of getting scooped or getting stolen you know having your ideas stolen if you have to make your data public so yeah there's this whole kind of i, I think there's a lot of unease and different opinions about open data the my understanding of the peer reviewers openness initiative is that you can, uh, um, you either make the data available or you give a reason why you're not right. going to. And I, I guess maybe people are afraid that they'll give a reason and it won't be seen as legitimate. Um, I'm not quite sure yeah. if what, I am, if, I don't know if people have thought it that deeply or if they're just like, I don't know about this whole open data thing. And then now here's these, you know, radicals asking me to make my data open. Yeah, I think there's both. And I think there are really legitimate concerns about open data. But what's interesting to me is that this case is different, right? This is a reviewer asking for data as part of the review process. They're yeah. already sworn to confidentiality. Well, They're already sworn <laughs> sworn, to not... sworn's a little hard word, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the agreement, right? right? right. And that's also in the yeah. COPE guidelines, that they're not allowed to reuse any of the information they see from reviewing. They're not allowed to communicate it with anybody else. They're not allowed to use it in their own research, et cetera. So we could question whether that's... Um, whether that's enforceable, but yeah. it's different than posting your data publicly. Right. I think that there would address could... the scooping concerns. That probably wouldn't address the right. human subjects or proprietary. I think I think it addressed some, right? So like, there's some cases where you couldn't post your data publicly, but you could share it with the reviewers, yeah. and there might there are some cases where you couldn't do either. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. So yeah. Uh, sorry. Go ahead, Alexa. I also think that um, people have like a knee jerk reaction to what what they see as like signs of suspicion and especially like institutionalizing suspicious reactions. Um, and that was something that I thought about too, um, when I was writing my blog post, um, was, so I make a comment in my blog post about how I don't like the idea of, you know, being, um, being constantly suspicious of my like collaborators and colleagues. And I think that actually is a controversial thing to say. Um, and it is very tricky because, um, there there's some distinction between suspicion and skepticism. And of course, like I value skepticism very much. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I think that sometimes people see what I see as important examples of skepticism that are necessary as, yeah, a sign of suspicion that they, like, they just don't, they don't want to introduce that into our field in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that, that, that tension between suspicion or you know versus trust and kind of good scientific skepticism that's that's i think that underlies a lot of this stuff and that's probably going to be a big thing going forward 
Yeah, we've talked about that before. I think we should do a whole episode on it at some point. All right. Well, that's probably, uh, speaking of uh, doing episodes, should we move on to our letter of the week? Yes. Yeah, let's do Okay, that. so this is uh, um, our letter this week uh, uh, is from, uh, well, Alexa, I'll let you read and introduce the letter. All right. So um, the letter begins, Dear the Black Goat, um, I recently got an action letter for a manuscript where we report an exploratory factor analysis. In it, reviewer two suggested a hypothesis and previous articles to cite that would predict one of the factors we found. The reviewer's tone was one of trying to be helpful, but I am uncomfortable because we did not actually predict that result. The editor did not comment directly on that recommendation, but only said in general terms to respond to all of the reviewer's points. What should I do? Signed, hypothesizing after reviewers know stuff. Harks. <laughs> Very creative. Name. I hate reviewer two. Oh, reviewer two! <laughs> Curse you! <laughs> So this is interesting. I had a similar situation not too long ago, um, but it was actually the editor suggesting that we should say that we predicted what we found because any reasonable person would have predicted it because the literature supports it, et cetera. So it sounds like a similar case where there there is a theoretical and, and a literature out there mm-hmm. that maybe if you had read it, you would have made that prediction. <laughs> um, so it's a tricky situation, right? And and one part, you know, Daryl Bem's paper gets slammed a lot. Mm-hmm for giving bad advice on how to write an article, but I do think you you want to give readers the background they need to interpret your findings. So if there's a literature out there that would help them interpret your finding, it would be good to incorporate it in the introduction. So I think one question is, how do you do that if you're not, if you didn't actually predict it, how do you justify it? We're going to talk about this for literature that foreshadows our results, <laughs> um, but not because we predicted our results. So that was a challenge we faced too. Sanjay, I have a question for you as the oldest member of our podcast. <laughs> Um, were you ever taught? You're, you're going to keep throwing that at me, aren't you? <laughs> um, were you ever taught to use the the, the BEM approach? Um, and if so, like what was the what was the argument for why? Yeah, I I remember the. So I don't think I was ever. I remember the I remember the BEM article from when I was in graduate school. I remember it sort of going around. I uh, you know and I remember even then like some discussion of is this uh, sort of is this okay or not? I mean, I think the, it's tough, right? Because, you know, we, we look back on that BEM article and especially because BEM specifically was associated with the ESP study that raised a lot of controversy, but like a lot of, first of all, a lot, if you go back and look at it, a lot of it's just like about good writing. And, and there is this idea, which I think is still an important one, which is that, uh, you know, a scientific report should be readable and, Mm -hmm. There's there is like an element of narrative and storytelling in a good scientific report, and the the challenge is like how do you do that in a way that maintains the the sort of the integrity of the science? And so, mm. um, yeah, I mean, for you know, sometimes I think what Samin was saying that that you know the compromise is like you 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 have to find ways to sort of prepare your reader for what they're going to see and give them the background. Um, without confusing them about like a priori prediction, which is a really important concept in scientific inference. Yeah, and that's what we ended up doing in my case, where the the editor asked us to reframe the intro around our finding and and 
say that we predicted it or say that it would have been predicted from the literature. It was kind of ambiguous what he was asking us to do. So we did review the literature and ended the literature review by saying, therefore, <clears throat> any reasonable person who had stopped to make a prediction <laughs> might have predicted this, but let us be clear. Yeah, right. <laughs> we did not do that. Yeah. So kind of writing the intro he wanted us to write, but ending with a really explicit statement that this was exploratory and we didn't make any predictions. Right. Yeah. Can I also make a confession? I taught Daryl Bem's paper all the time. Yeah. Like I taught undergrad and grad methods. I thought you were younger than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. yeah, I mean, I think the, yeah, so so the the issue of like citing stuff is tough, right? I was talking to Pete McGraw recently. He wrote a blog post about what he calls T-hacking, um, where people leave out citations. So this is kind of the other end of the extreme, right, where people leave out citations in, in ways that are, you know, the, by their absence, make their work look more novel or innovative, right? So that that's really the extreme of the other direction where, like, sometimes there's a paper where it's like, oh, if you had cited this thing that people know about, um, your, your work wouldn't look so counterintuitive or it wouldn't look so innovative or something like that. So we certainly mm -hmm. want to avoid that. Um, uh, but it's tough because you know hindsight is twenty twenty, and you know sometimes it seems like the obvious prediction once you know the results. Other times, it really is the case that if you if you had known this, you you would have cited it and predicted it. I mean, I think that in in this letter, it's an explicitly exploratory analysis, and and that's something I I would love to see the field get better about sort of developing norms around how you report exploratory work. I think. Uh, people sometimes say pre-registration is going to squeeze out exploratory work. I think it's the opposite. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to make clear how much work yes. is exploratory, and we're going to have to learn how to tell a story around that that's an honest story. And so I think saying, you know, from the outset, you know, we did this exploratory analysis, you know, we were sort of guided by the following questions or interests. Um, here are some things that could turn up, and, and that's where you can do that kind of foreshadowing um, while being explicit about the fact that, like, this was exploratory. Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting that, that Bem's article was this example of how to make something, like, an engaging thing to read. Um, and I certainly see how it can do that. I see the importance of foreshadowing, and I use that in my own writing as well. Um, but it also seems to me like it would be interesting to write a paper where you say, like, this is why we asked this question. Um, we didn't know what the answer would be and then read on to find out what the answer would be. Um, because you get to a point where if you, yeah, if you read papers that um, were written in this sort of BEM style, it's not interesting to read them. Like it's, it's easy to read them. Um, but you know, basically from like the first paragraph title. of the interact, yeah, the title often, um, what's going to happen? Because as soon as they say like, well, this theory, blah, 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 blah. You're like, okay, well, I know exactly what your results are going to look like. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. There's kind of the, there's the formula, which Malcolm Gladwell actually really mastered, which is right. Like you, you sort of, uh, you know, you kind of have the setup and then there's the like, you might think it's this and then it's the like, but really it's that. Yes. And I've definitely done that. And if you've seen enough of those, then as soon as you get to the, you might think it's this, you, you see what's going on and you're like, okay, this is, you know, and, and often, you know, like on a 
quick read or a superficial read, a ca- not superficial, a casual read, right? You're like, you're pulled into the story, but then, you know, you start thinking about it and you're like, well, wait, no, I, I wouldn't have thought this, you know, or, or it would have been this, but in these really specific circumstances that aren't what the study's about or whatever. Um, yeah, it's but- the sort of counterintuitive setup kind of starts to look a little less exciting once you've seen it a few times. The cool thing about doing accuracy research or self-knowledge is that like, you can set it up as like, do people know or are they totally in the dark? And either way, it's exciting. <laughs> Read on to find out. But then the answer is always 0.2. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's always like, in between. Like, they know a little bit and they kind of don't know. And it depends right. like, what your expectations yeah. are or whether like, you consider that accurate or not. Yeah, that's kind of the same with like, personality stability work, right? It's like, it's more stable than zero. It's less stable than one. <laughs> yeah, right. But you what can set up mean? the two extremes, right? You can yeah. be like, is it, are people like set like plaster or are they a blank slate? Read on to find out. Oh, I don't it's know anybody who ever would have done that. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, so I think... It feels like this is an insider personality joke right now. Yeah, yeah. All the, all the everybody else is like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Anyway, um, cool. Well, I think, I think we've, uh, I, I hope we've answered that letter. Uh, um, I, I hope Hark's... Feel some, how would we uh, ever know if we had answered this person's question? I, I have no oh idea God. how. Okay, <laughs> confession time. This this letter was from me ten years ago. This happened to me. Um, uh, yeah, and and that's kind of you know how how we tried to handle it. But uh, um, I I still hear about stuff like this happening to people all the time. I mean, Samin, like you said, that just happened to you recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, and speaking of which, if people want to send us real letters, not fake letters that we wrote ourselves, <laughs> you, can, you can write to letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Uh, and uh, um, if you have uh, like a problem or a conundrum or something, tell us about it and we'll try to talk about it on the podcast if you give a shit what we have to say about it. Um, Cool. So our, uh, let's talk about our kind of main thing today. So uh, um, we wanted to talk today about imposter syndrome. We wanted to talk about sort of, I think, uh, starting with imposter syndrome, but also just kind of talking about sort of mental health and, and well-being as an academic. Um, and, uh, you know, imposter syndrome, I think, is, is gets talked about a lot. I, I feel like I see it sort of bubble up in my social media periodically. I've seen it being talked about lately, but it's kind of a perennial topic. People talked about it way back in the dark ages when I was in graduate school. Here's my old man <laughs> moment of the day. Um, have you guys ever felt imposter syndrome? I feel like I waffle back and forth between extreme imposter syndrome and extreme, like, all my idols have clay feet and is anybody <laughs> a real, like, the real deal? <laughs> so it's, like, kind of the opposite of imposter syndrome. But yeah, I experience both all the time. Um, well, maybe should we should talk about what imposter syndrome is? I think most people have probably heard of it, right? But it's this this feeling that I'm a fraud, and people are gonna figure out, like, uh, you know, or I don't belong, or I'm not good enough yeah, to be here. Yeah, you're right. Not yeah. a fraud, right? But but yeah, mm-hmm. like they let me into graduate school by mistake, and or mm-hmm. they let you know they hired me into this job by mistake. And they didn't see my weaknesses, and you know everybody else belongs here, and I don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So, I definitely have experienced imposter syndrome, and I think continue to experience imposter syndrome like fairly frequently. Um, and so, I think that uh, 
I had that kind of feeling in graduate school where I, yeah, I just thought that, that people were wrong about me, I guess. Like, people seemed to think that, you know, like, I generally knew what I was doing and I knew that that was not true. Um, so that's like a scary feeling because then, you know, you can't necessarily trust the feedback that you get from people when it's positive because it's disconcerting, right? You think like, well, you must not like see, you know, like what I'm really capable of, which is maybe less than what you expect. Um, and like, I, yeah, I continue to have like feelings of imposter syndrome, um, as a professor as well. Um, probably my most, like the most influential conversation that I've ever had about imposter syndrome was a conversation that I had with Samin when I was first um, becoming friends with Samin. And I, yeah, like I didn't even really recognize what I was describing. I just said, you know, like um, maybe something good had happened or somebody had, had said something nice um, about my work or something like that. And I just told Samin, like, yeah, this, this person doesn't fucking know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> and... Um, Samin was like, you know, that's like a, that has a name. It's called imposter syndrome. Like a lot of people would feel it. Um, and then she also asked me, um, like, do you feel like you can't hold your own in conversations with other people who are in academia? Um, and like, she was like, you know, when you're like planning studies or when you're talking about ideas or whatever, can you, um, like, can you hang with other academics basically? And I said like, yeah, I think that I can. I don't usually feel like I'm totally overwhelmed by like what other people are saying, like usually I can understand um, the arguments that are that they're making, and I think that I can make valid arguments too. Um, and she was like, "Well, that's kind of like what matters." Um, and I think about that conversation a lot um, because so I, while I do think that there there is some merit to imposter syndrome, so I think it is good to like remind yourself that there are other people who are doing admirable things or, you know, like who do work that I would be unable to do. Or there are people who, um, are like, they would make me feel overwhelmed in a conversation. Like I'd be like, Oh my gosh, they're so quick or smart, or they think about this in such a sophisticated way. So I don't want to, um, abandon that feeling. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I think that when we feel imposter syndrome, often what we're comparing ourselves to is some kind of like bizarre abstraction of like the people that we admire most and those just those people just don't exist right like um yeah these imperfections i don't know if if you guys catch yourself especially sanjay since you're so old i wonder if you still feel this way (laughs) but so like like i mentioned before like i've had you know people i admire and i feel like one by one if i give it enough time each of them does something where i realize that they're human and sometimes it's really disappointing and I like lose some respect for them. And sometimes it's more like, oh yeah, they make mistakes too or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but it, so you just literally yesterday, I read a paper with an author that I really, really admire somebody who I thought like really, I still think really knows what they're doing. And I completely disagreed with how they interpreted their results. And it, this was not a case of disillusionment. This was a case of like reminding myself that everybody's human and it feels nice to feel like I have I would be able to critique this person's work. And that's a cool feeling. Like maybe I'm wrong, but at least like, I think there's a legitimate debate to be had about the way they interpreted their results. And so I think for me, that's what helps a lot with imposter syndrome is like seeing the human side of the people that I idealize and put on a pedestal. And sometimes that can be really jarring. Like sometimes they're much more human than you (laughs) would like, but, but the, the middle ground is I think a really nice 
reminder. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like imposter syndrome, my, my experiences with it can come from a couple different places, which is annoying because you tamp one down and then the other one just revs up, right? But one, one is this sort of social comparison, this kind of you look at people around you and you look at yourself and you feel like, you know, because I mean, one of the things that's tough about academia, and this is true in graduate school, this is true as an advanced whatever professor is like, there aren't there aren't sort of objective, like clear markers of what you're supposed to be doing. It's it is a social comparison. So I mean, I remember like early in graduate school, you know, when I came to graduate school, I came to work on the Mills Project, which is this like at the time, 40-year longitudinal study. There's a huge archive. So, like, 80-year now? Yeah, probably, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, There was this huge archive of data, and so I spent, like, most of my first year of graduate school just sort of learning the study, learning what was there. And I had friends in my, you know, cohort mates, friends who were, you know, they were on their third study, you know, running their third study, and I was still like, "Uh, where, where are the files, you know? And I remember talking to them, you know, and, and sort of figuring out through this conversation, like, I would be sitting there feeling like, I'm so behind, I, I haven't gotten anything done, you're running your third study, and they'd be like, man, I'm running these, like, shitty little studies, and, and you're, you know, you're going to get to work on this great data set, and my data is terrible and whatever, and it, it's kind of like everybody finds a way to sort of compare themselves that, you know, it's easy to find these ways, and, and and you know, and so I've found with with people I know that talking to them sometimes sort of helps. But then there, you know, for me there's this other source of it which is a little tougher, which is kind of this feeling that a, a discrepancy between sort of how I think, you know, I'm being seen or or by others and how I'm seeing myself. Right. And that's that's a little tougher. So so even if I sort of can talk myself into like, well, you know, not everybody's, you know, perfect or whatever. It's it's the sense that, like, I know my inadequacies. I know my failings in a way that uh, is really hard to talk about. And therefore, I don't talk about it. And therefore, people don't know the real me. And they don't know the fuck up that I am, and that that's a harder one to deal with because because it's really you know you know by definition those are things that are like you don't want to talk about um, yeah and that that's so you know I tell I tell graduate students that like I still experience imposter syndrome and sometimes I get these looks like are you serious like and I'm like yep it never goes away mm-hmm. sorry um, yeah, yeah. that's just part of it yeah I think it's really important to show. You know, it's hard. You have to calibrate it, but to show the the professional side of the people who know you professionally, your human side too, and that like, yeah, we, you know, all of us feel rejection in our professional lives, and we feel inadequate in some ways. And uh, there was a philosopher who gave a talk at a, I think it was a keynote or it was a big address, and he talked about struggling with depression. And he was a very, very well respected and successful philosopher and I know it had a a huge impact a positive impact on the field I think it's hard there's not a lot of avenues for talking about that stuff but I think it is important yeah I mean that broader issue of like mental health as an academic that's something that we're really not good at dealing with in the academic profession especially or, or in general but especially 
as psychologists. Like you'd think if anybody, if any field would have a handle on the idea that, you know, successful people, everybody's going to sort of be facing this. You'd think it would be psychologists, but we're not any better than anybody else. We don't talk about it, right? And we have these expectations of like, you know, something that like kills me is when, you know, when someone's introducing a speaker and they'll say like, and, you know, he's had continuous grant funding since, you know, 1993. <laughs> and and that idea that we laud this sort of like constant high productivity, constant high, like we don't give people space for the idea that like you may have had like, because people who get depression, they get depression for periods of time and that you may have had like a year of your life that just fucking sucked where you couldn't get anything done or longer and that you may come, that like there should be room to come back from that, and that we just laud this like, you know, and we've structured our field. You've got tenure clocks and other things like that um, that don't give people room to to have, you know, to have things go on. Yeah, we have this thing, the post tenure slump, where like people are a little bit less productive after tenure. I don't know if it's true empirically, but I think it's funny that we have this euphemism. I think for a lot of people, it's like. It might not be that exact timing, but we have years when we're not doing well and not that motivated or, you know, depressed or other things. And I think it's funny. I've definitely had that question of like, oh, what happened in 2013 or whatever? And it's like, well, that was the year that I went through a breakup and it kind of sucked and I yeah. didn't do much and I sat on my ass. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Uh, but you can't say that. So Right. Yeah. Post-tenure slump is a more acceptable answer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, like, I mean, I think there there's something powerful about, like, coming up with a name for it and normalizing mm-hmm. it, right? This is kind of mm-hmm. the same as, like, talking to your friends about your imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. If we can, you know, if something's a normative experience and we can name it, then that helps. Yeah. But I think it's especially tough when people are having things that aren't, that aren't named and maybe they're not even normative in the sense that, like, they happen to everybody or they're, they're talked about as though they happen to everybody. But they just yeah. happen to you, you know, yeah. yeah. It's tough also like with mentoring, right? Like giving people space to feel that way. But also, so like I've had situations where grad students have told me that they want, they don't want to, like maybe they don't want to stay in academia or they don't want to go to a conference. They don't want to pursue a particular goal that they had before. And I want to walk, like I'm trying to walk this fine line between saying it's totally fine to change that goal. You don't have to have that goal. I completely support you. But if you're changing it because you don't think you're up to it, I want you to know that I think you are and I think you can do it. But like how to do that without putting pressure on them that they have to share that goal or they have to value that thing. Um, I think that's a really fine line to walk, like trying to figure out, is it a matter of lack of confidence that's unwarranted, in which case I want to help boost their confidence, or is it just a matter of personal preference and choice, in which case I want to support that. Mm Yeah, I mean, I think the, and it's tough too because people people go through mental health difficulties for reasons that are unrelated to, but right. of, of course then they, they start to interact with their work. So the cause may may not be that, you know, something about being a professor or a graduate student. It, it may be, you know, things in other parts of your life or it may just be, you know, temperamental. Um, I mean, you know, like I, I go through periods of depression. That's that's just kind of part of who I am. Um, I've it's been true of me since I was a kid. And uh, you know, when it happens, it interacts with and it latches onto what's going on for me professionally in ways that can sometimes exacerbate it because I have difficulties, you know, at work, and then it it kind of spirals and that sort of thing. Um, 
Uh, yeah, but it's just like how how do you fucking deal with that? Uh, yeah. Our our field is not set up for that, and uh, and I think it really grinds people up sometimes. Yeah, I think pluralistic ignorance is like a huge contributor to this kind of stuff. So I think that it's easy um, to look at the other people around us and think like, well, they seem to like have everything under control, and they seem like um, they're always doing well. Um, and so that suggests that like me not doing well or me being depressed or, um, me being really like having a lot of anxiety, um, is it, that's an alienating feeling, right? To feel like you might be the only one or in a very small minority. Um, but then it's easy to forget that like you might also not be talking about this to other people and you might also seem like one of those together people to everyone else. Um, and I'm curious what, like if you guys have ever, you know, been in a situation where you've um, been really reluctant to talk about, um, like feeling, yeah, really depressed or really anxious, um, because I know that for me, one of the things that prevents me from talking about those feelings when I have them is that I feel like a very, um, a very strong obligation to be really grateful for the position that I'm in. So, like, I think that I'm like. Um, like extremely fortunate um, and I have uh, a career that is like interesting and rewarding um, and you know pays me money and it is relatively secure and I have these great friends and stuff like that and so to say that you know I'm feeling like anxious about tenure expectations or like depressed because I um, don't know if like the work that I'm doing is meaningful um, I, and I know that's totally irrational, but I think that the feeling that I have is that I'll sound ungrateful, and so I don't I don't talk about that. Yeah, I I think uh, I think in some ways it's very defensible to not want to talk about things sometimes in the in the sense that we're not you're not going to be universally well received, <laughs> and so you know some of it might be that like you know uh, we are in this sort of like you know we've got these great jobs and whatever. Why are you complaining? And people will throw that at you, and then there's you know from the flip side there's the like you know people might just not be sympathetic to your problems, or they might be sympathetic to your problems in a superficial way, but they might say okay, well you know yeah I really feel you like that's that's tough, and then in the back of their mind and in their actions it's like and so you probably shouldn't be here like why don't you go be depressed somewhere else Mm um uh like it's great i'm gonna be totally human about you but uh uh, to your face but then like yeah you probably shouldn't i mean if, if you know if you go through this shit and and it's gonna make you have like one year of low productivity then maybe you probably just shouldn't be taking up space that you know somebody else should have like I, I I don't know how much that would actually happen. I've gotten I've gotten that vibe in a few instances when I've, you know, sort of disclosed a little bit and that's part of what makes it hard to disclose. Um I guess I'm fucking disclosing on the podcast, <laughs> but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is really hard and yeah, I think there are definitely consequences. I think it would be naive to say that there aren't, but I think, you know, I really appreciate you being open about it. I think, you know, those of us who are in a position where there's not, not much, the consequences are less, like the worst case scenario is not, not as bad. I think it helps for us to talk more openly about it. And 
I have like I yeah you know there was this thing going around the CV of failures that I think there was a lot of problems with yeah. that. But I think pointing out, for example, that like we've had slumps in our productivity and it had to do with personal things going on in our lives or feelings, emotions, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I don't know, like I think that helps, and so that everyone. I think it's easy. You know, when I started grad school. One of the professors in the program told me the great thing about academia is you can choose which hundred hours a week you work. Ha ha ha! And I was like, I hear people say stuff like that. Some people have said stuff like that to my my grad students, and I, you know, try to find an opportunity soon after that to pull them aside and say that's not true. You don't have to work a hundred hours a week. You can afford to have ups and downs in your life. Like you know, it's okay. Um, so I think not just to say it in the abstract, but to say it's happened to me, and I've had years that I wasn't very productive and. It's still possible to be an academic and and have that, have a lot, have um um, an emotional life. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know how like systemically how to make it better, and that's one of the things. I don't know if you guys have any ideas about that. Like, you know, we're we're in a field where if you're able to work more hours a week and able to do, you know, it's sort of like. Like why why do we not let athletes or why do we try to prevent athletes from using steroids? It's it's you know like why don't we just say we're going to have the all doping Olympics like on the old SNL sketch? <laughs> you know it's it's because we think like okay we don't want to make people sort of put themselves in harm's way. I guess that maybe there are other reasons too, but certainly you know performance enhancing drugs can can hurt people and we don't want to create this competitive environment where everybody else feels like they have to do it too. And I feel like to some extent like. I don't know how to, you, you can make a similar argument in academia. You could say, like, you know, we shouldn't be judging people by these standards that are set by people who are doing things that maybe are self-destructive to those people themselves or maybe just would be self-destructive to, to anybody else who tried to do it. Um, but, I, don't, I like, I feel like that starts to break down really fast because then what are you going to do? You're going to tell people, like, nope, you can't, like, work on research for more than 40 hours a week. That's, you know, that's not going to work, and I don't think that's even a good idea. So I don't know what yeah. the solution would be. I just don't like when people exaggerate and lie about it. Like, that's yeah. already – like, it's one thing yeah. for people to actually work, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. That's a lot. Like, okay, like – you know, that's a lot and that's hard. But then for people to exaggerate and say they work 100 hours a week or everybody should work 100, no one works 100 hours a week in academia. Like maybe not literally no one, but basically no one. Like that's not realistic. And I think those comments are really harmful and they don't affect everyone equally, right? Like they're going to affect people who anticipate having to have childcare needs, like having to take care of children or having to take care of elder parents or having other like family demands or other personal demands on their time so the people that are going to be least deterred by that comment of like working 100 hours a week are the people who have the most privilege and the most social support and the most the fewest obligations in their life and that's going to lead to a more homogenous field if we repeat those those things yeah i've actually seen research on exactly what you just said maybe you've seen it too that like when when they you know I can't remember the the citation now, but basically somebody asked people, like, how many hours a week do you work? And then they actually had people keep diaries, and it was like people, yeah, nobody works. Like, it's not sustainable to literally measurably work, you know, 80 or 100 hours a week, and people don't actually do it even. And and it's not necessarily, like, I don't think it's, like, deliberately misleading. I think people really 
they, they sort of, because they're, they're not counting and, and they mm-hmm. just, it feels like I don't have any time. Um, but but then you hear that and, and you look at yourself and you're like, well, okay, so that means that I should have worked like 14 hours yesterday and <laughs> yeah, I didn't, right. you know. Right, yeah. yeah. I counted for a few months and yeah, like a 48-hour a week feels exhausting. Like the weeks that I did work like 50 hours or close to 50 hours were really hard. So I don't know, I'm a little skeptical that there are people who regularly work a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. But maybe I'm wrong, but at least not, not 100, not probably not 80 yeah 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 something that I'm also reminded of is that um there's a conversation that I had with um yeah my former advisor Mickey once um and we yeah we were just talking about it was I think I I had seen him over the holidays this was when I was no longer his student um and I was talking about feeling I guess like guilty about not doing more work over the break um and he said like oh, that's a, that's a totally, like, North American mentality that, like, the more hours you put into work, the more, um, I guess, worthwhile your output is. Um, and so I don't know if he specifically meant, like, you can do just as much good work by um, working less and giving yourself breaks, or if what he meant was, like, um, maybe just being extremely productive isn't, like, the most important thing. Um, but I had never really... Um, considered that this was like a, a priority to question, I guess. Um, so I think, yeah, I do think that um, it's very instilled in us from when we're kids in at least North America, but apparently not, maybe not elsewhere. Um, that, yeah, in order to be like a contributing member of a field or of society generally, um, you just need to work a lot. And the more you work, the more worthwhile you are as like a member of that society um and that was the one of the first times that I had even really like questioned that assumption yeah yeah I think I mean I don't know how to change the system I can I can definitely think of examples of people in my own history who've who've said or done things that were helpful right so like one my postdoc advisor James Gross uh um he was very protective of time with his family so he he worked ridiculous hours. Uh, he's he's a very hardworking person, and and so in that in that sense, it was tough to look at him and and kind of look at how sort of productive he was. But against that backdrop, if he was supposed to be home to be with his kids, and you were meeting with him right before he was supposed to leave, and the clock hits five o'clock, and he's got to be home to meet his kids, the meeting was over. And he was very, he was very nice about it, but he's like, I have to go. And, and that to me was something when I had a family was influential that the idea of sort of saying like, if something's an important part of my life, then it deserves to be protected. Um, and, and it, it deserves my attention. And I certainly have not always lived up to that, but it's, it's something that I've aspired to do for that part of my life. And then the other thing that was really helpful was when I was hired at the University of Oregon, my department head at the time, Marjorie Taylor, <clears throat> she used to, you know, we would meet and she she used the phrase occupational hazard, um, which I think was very deliberate that she said it's an occupational hazard that you will always feel like you can be working more. 
And she's like, I'm not going to tell you not to work hard. I'm your department head. Um, but you, you know, you have to think about that and you have to realize that and you have to, you know, live a balanced life. And to hear that from, you know, my department head as a new assistant professor, pre-tenure, all of that, again, sort of sent, sent this message that like, you know, she wasn't saying, you know, be lazy and don't work. Like, you know, I think there are some people who like some of the sort of work fetishists who would productivity fetishists who would hear that and be like, Oh, you're soft or whatever. But it's like, no, she was just saying, keep some sanity in your life. And it was really helpful to hear that specifically from her. Yeah. That's really amazing that your boss told you that. I think I want to add one more thing just from my perspective. So I have a lot of sympathy. I like, I try to imagine sometimes what it must be like to have a family, to have kids and be doing, you know, academia and all that. And I think it'd be really, really hard. And so I, my next comment is not to minimize that at all, but, but I think something else, <laughs> something else that I don't know, we don't talk about either. Like both things are things we don't talk about enough. But when I moved to my first job as an assistant professor, so I think the first year or two of being an assistant professor are really hard no matter what, but I moved alone. I was single, I was dating and that sucks. Yeah. Like I know having a family is hard and I know having kids is hard, but not having someone to come home to at five o'clock is hard too. And I think that's something that we don't talk about very much. And it's yeah. especially salient during transitions, but like, especially, I mean, the being single and being lonely part, we talked about a little bit, the how much dating sucks part, like, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't have too much sympathy for that, but it is, I mean, it adds a whole nother roller coaster to your life on top of the academic stuff. I'm mean, not that life when you're not dating isn't a roller coaster, but anyway. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's a huge, I'm not going to disagree with you there. I think that's a huge part of, that's a huge part of life. And it's just a different set of challenges. Um, yeah, a lot of universities are in places that are, you know, universities have like attract this sort of nomadic kind of high openness, all these other things that are sort of like the kinds of people that end up as professors. And not every university is in a larger sort of town and cultural setting where there's lots of other people like that too. And and that's something that I think a lot of people have to deal with. It's like you're at this time of your life where you're, you know, having relationships and all these other things, right? And and that's really important. Yeah, I think so. I maybe I had a similar reaction to um, to Sanjay talking um, as you did, Samin, um, because I think that one thing that... Um, so I think, and maybe this is, yeah, maybe this is... Um, like a grass is greener, like perspective or something like that. But I think that people recognize that like going home to be with your kids is like, like cool. It's okay to prioritize that. Um, and I'm not saying that it's easy to prioritize that. Um, but I think that most people would respond well to somebody who said like meetings over, I need to go home and hang out with my kids. Um, and something that like, I think that I encounter sometimes is wanting to prioritize, um, people who I guess, maybe like don't fit into that kind of conventional um framework so for instance i think that people respond more poorly to like i want to like go home and spend time with my friends um and for me my friends are my family um so i think and this sort of reminds me of something that you were talking about earlier samine when you were talking about um you know if you call it a like a a post-tenure slump then that's legit. But if you call it like a bad breakup, then it's not legit. Um, and so I think that sometimes it is hard to, um, accept the importance of events that don't like fit into an accepted category or like people that don't fit into, yeah, an accepted, um, you know, like life priority category. 
Um, and so, yeah, I don't have a good solution to that, but my approach has been to just kind of like ignore that, um, and try to do it anyways. Give yourself permission. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, on the family stuff, I'll say that, uh, there's definitely this awful thing that happens if you're a man, which is people give you credit for doing the things you Mm -hmm. ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. So like if I say it. Yeah, I know, exactly. Like, oh, you're such a good father. It's like, fuck you. I'm like, Are you going to go babysit your kid today? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> that is the worst. Yeah. And so, so yeah, no, I, I definitely, like, I, I think I can get some credit for that. I think that the difficulties of parenthood are, are, you know, it's not like, well, I think there are some places where maybe it would be less supported. My, my department's trying pretty hard. I think, you know, we can do better, but, but, you know, trying pretty hard to be more family friendly. I think there's some places that just don't give a shit about that, but no, I mean, I think that the challenges of family are, there's a lot of other things that go into that that have to do with just like the inflexibility of the time, the amount of time, the, the amount of, (laughs) of, you know, being, being a parent that's necessary, but not uh, rewarding. There's this saying like, you know, the years are short, the minutes are long uh, when you're a parent, right? And uh, anyway, yeah. But but no, I think I think there are different kinds of challenges with different ways of trying to lead a personal life. I guess uh, you know, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want my experiences having a family to like be used to delegitimize de- things that other people are doing that are important to them. Yeah, no, I think there shouldn't be any conflict. It's not a competition at all. I think all these things. These are all like the theme here is that one's personal life can interfere with our work and that sometimes it's hard to get permission to give that room. And I think there are things that can make that better or worse. And I also imagine for people who are not heteronormative or who are you know queer in some way, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. then it becomes even harder because yeah. you may not feel like you can even talk about it. Or, yeah. And also the dating stuff is probably even harder and a lot of aspects of it. So, But I, I think we all have different varieties of it that we struggle with and don't talk about very much yeah academia fucking sucks all right (laughs) (laughs) but we have to be grateful sanjay we have to be grateful well and i do you know and that's another thing right like it's there there's some legitimacy to that like my my university right now just announced they're going to lay off 75 faculty from the non-tenure track right so contingent faculty people on contracts it's like i can't i can't say that i don't have this position of you can call it privilege you can call it whatever but like i have something that people i work side by side with don't have Mm -hmm. and and i you know none, none of this should should diminish that either i know people who've really been affected very hard by layoffs that my university's had in the past um, and and it's it's awful. I mean, in some ways, the you know tenure wasn't invented to like help us manage personal lives. But you know, it is true that like if I if I could psychologically accept being dead wood, you know, I could like <laughs> I could get away with a lot. <laughs> It'd be a pretty sweet life. Yeah. That would if yeah. I could, if I could be like a hundred percent accepting of dead wood. Uh, but that's that's the thing, right? Like the they, you know, why isn't there more dead wood? Because they fucking filter you for ten years on you know, <laughs> graduate school and pre tenure. So that, you know, people that would want to do that, it's hard to make it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, does that? Uh, I think I think we've uh, I think we've gotten some good stuff out there. Uh, so uh, are we done? 
I think so. Yeah, I think so. I, we have to come up with a better way to end the podcast. Than <laughs> yeah, going, are we done? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should okay. do a preview of next time. A preview of next time. If only we, we had know. figured out yeah. what we're going to do next time. You uh, tell us. Go next, on our Facebook page yes. or email us and let us know yeah. what we should do next. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, so you can find us uh, on the internets. Our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at Black Goat Pod and Facebook, Black Goat Pod. And if you want to get in touch with us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>